Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. France has one of the world's highest rates of men who kill their female partners, about 10% of the country's total murders. It's a problem that hasn't drawn much attention until recently, when purple-wearing protesters took to the streets. And there are few industries that won't be disrupted by climate change, especially agriculture. For winemakers, that means a slow shift farther and farther from the equator. But more will change than just the world's wine map. First up, though. After a brisk 77 days of investigations and hearings, Democrat leaders yesterday announced draft articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. The president's misconduct is as simple and as terrible as this. President Trump solicited a foreign nation, Ukraine, to publicly announce investigations into his opponent and a baseless conspiracy theory promoted by Russia to help his re-election campaign. The chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, said the president had imperiled the integrity of the 2020 election. Then, Gerald Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, laid out the charges. The first article is for abuse of power. It is an impeachable offense for the president to exercise the powers of his public office to obtain an improper personal benefit. The second article was for obstruction of Congress, focused on the president's blocking of witnesses and documents that the committees requested. Here, too, we see a familiar pattern in President Trump's misconduct. A president who declares himself above accountability, above the American people, and above Congress's power of impeachment. At a campaign rally last night, the president denied the allegations. But just quickly, here are the facts on Shifty Schiff. This honest guy makes up my statements. He said, the president of Ukraine repeatedly declared that there was no pressure, but he didn't want to say that. We said, say it, say it, you crooked bastard, say it. The House Judiciary Committee will now work on amendments to the articles before sending them to be voted on by the full Congress. If they're passed, that would trigger a trial in the Senate, only the third time that's ever happened. The articles of impeachment are quite narrowly focused on two things, on abuse of office related to the Ukraine scandal and also on obstructing the congressional impeachment inquiry. John Prudeau is our United States editor. Democrats decided not to make them too broad and too sweeping. They're pretty short if you read them, only a handful of pages long. And before they were announced, there was some discussion of of whether or not uh, they would include allegations that emerged from the Mueller report, but the Democrats seem to have steered clear of that. Why do you suppose that is? 
there was a debate really as soon as the impeachment inquiry opened about whether the Democrats should go narrow or whether they should go wide. The case for going wide was they could include the um, obstruction of justice charges from the Mueller report, um, where Robert Mueller was a bit inconclusive, but suggested that the president may well have obstructed justice. They could include all sorts of things related to the emoluments clause, so throw in some of the stuff about dignitaries staying at Trump hotels and so on. The argument on the other side for going narrow was that if you make this thing too broad, then it really strengthens the Republican argument that Democrats are just throwing everything they can at Donald Trump in the hope that something sticks. The Democratic House leadership also wanted to get this thing done quickly, and that argued for going narrow rather than broad. And impeachment is, is well, obviously not something that happens very often. Do, do you think in the, in the grand history of presidential alleged misconduct, this is uh, as an unusual set of allegations? Do they, do they merit the whole impeachment process? That is a big question, Jason, because as you well know, right from the beginning, you know, even dating back to the presidency of George Washington, there were allegations of presidential misconduct. Every president has faced them. I think what's different about what President Trump has done and puts him more in the category of Nixon and Watergate is that both he personally directed this scheme. So a lot of allegations of presidential misconduct in the past have been aimed at aides or hangers-on to the president who've done things that the president didn't really know about. And number two, a lot of those allegations have also just been about money scandals. Um, This scandal is more like Watergate in that it has a clear and sort of narrow political purpose, which is to damage the opposition party. And in the case of the Ukraine affair, the front runner in the Democratic presidential primary. And also that it was directed by the president. You know, there's enough testimony, I think we can say that fairly clearly. So those two things, I think, mean that it's right up there with Watergate in terms of impeachable presidential conduct. And so to your mind, looking back on the way this has happened in the past, is this proceeding as, as I guess the, the founding fathers would have wanted? Is this, is the impeachment clause doing what it is supposed to? I think it is working more or less as the founders intended. I mean, one of the things that makes that question a bit hard to answer is that it was put there as a kind of break glass in case of emergency measure. The Founding Fathers didn't sketch out in great detail the sort of high crime and misdemeanor they were thinking about. In fact, they left left it deliberately vague because they wanted to cover um, every eventuality that might uh, occur in the future. What I think you can say, what's clear, is that the impeachment clause is partly there as a check on democracy gone wrong. Um, If you go back and think yourself into a kind of 18th century context, educated people in the 18th century were even enthusiastic um, Democrats and Republicans like the Founding Fathers, were sceptical about democracy and were aware of the kind of faults of um, democracy's past and how democracy had managed to kind of undermine um, themselves. And so they wanted to put a check on elections in there. And that's one of the things the impeachment clause is there to do. So one of the arguments that Republicans have made against Donald Trump's impeachment is that Democrats are just trying to usurp the popular will and undo the 2016 election results. That really is part of the design of the process. You know, that's that's a feature, not a bug. So, so yes, I think broadly it's working as as intended. 
And yet what we're seeing in this process is that it is entirely partisan. It is a uh, it is a pitched political battle and not a question about the kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors that this whole process was designed to to subvert. I mean, do, do you do you still assert that even the way this is playing out that it's doing what it should? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think that this is the sort of presidential scandal that the founders might have had in mind when they were drawing up impeachment. That said, they did not anticipate the development of a rigid two-party system in America. And America's institutions, with its many checks and balances, don't work as quite as the founders had intended in a highly partisan environment. I mean, there is some writing from Hamilton that suggests that he anticipated that impeachment would always become very partisan. Um, but also, if you look back at some of the things that Adams was saying at the time, you know, he said that uh, uh, the development of a two-party system would be the worst evil that could befall the republic. Um, if you look back at what's happened in practice, actually all three of the impeachments, so the Johnson, the Nixon and the Clinton ones, took place in a, in highly partisan um, environments. So what tends to happen here is that people you know, lock into partisan mode. And that's why, so far, no president has ever been both impeached by the House and removed by the Senate, where you need a two-thirds majority to, to remove a president. That's a very high hurdle when you've got a, a, you know, a partisan political system. And so for the modern era, we find ourselves locked in this this kind of partisan battle. Now that the the impeachment articles have been published, I mean, we, we know how this story is going to end, don't we? We do know how it's going to end. I think the House will, no surprise, big drum roll, will impeach Donald Trump uh, probably next week. The Senate will find him not guilty in the trial in January, and, and then he'll go into the um, election as the only president in American history to have been impeached by the House and also to run for re-election. So that will be interesting. As far as the Senate trial goes, we've done some um, analysis of our YouGov polling, which is quite interesting. It shows that though a plurality of Americans think that Donald Trump should be impeached, it's about 47% think he should to 44% who think he shouldn't. If you break it down by state, um, only in 19 of the 50 states is there a majority uh, for impeaching the president. And given, of course, the Senate gives every state two votes, that explains to you very clearly why Donald Trump won't be removed from office. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Across France, public sector workers are demonstrating noisily as mass strikes continue over planned reforms to the country's sprawling pension scheme. Today, the French government is set to announce details of changes to the system. But in Paris, last month, there was a more somber demonstration. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets wearing purple to demand changes to how domestic violence cases are handled. More than 130 women have been killed this year by a partner or an ex-partner, 
a figure that's higher than that in most other countries in Europe. There are often protests in Paris, and they're usually quite angry. And I think that what struck me most about this one was it was, first of all, was the, the, the color was very different. It was all purple. There was a sort of a coordinated effort to, to dress in purple, purple scarves, purple banners. But it was also very solemn. Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. You had women uh, holding the placards with the names of women who had been murdered by their partners. So you had their name, Justine or Martine, and then their age. Martine was 64, Justine was 20, Denise was 58. Different ages, different sort of backgrounds, uh, but all of them women who had been murdered by their, by their partners. And I think that, 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 that solemnity gave it a very powerful feeling. And when you spoke to people at the protest, what was the, the message, the mood? Mostly that the, it was important for people to understand that this was a serious issue in France, it needed to be taken seriously, and that it hadn't been in the past, that uh, there's been a, a sort of somehow a, a, a feeling that these were crimes of passion, that the nature of murder within a relationship that sort of somehow legitimized it, that made them very angry about that, and then wanting to make those voices heard and, and make sure that that question of Murder within a relationship is something that is on the agenda, that people understand that it's not a crime of passion, it's just murder. And, and so how widespread is the problem? How does France compare with other countries in Europe in that respect? France does have one of the worst records in the EU for murder rate by men of women in a partnership. It's not as high as the rate in Germany, that's actually even worse. But that, is, that number in France is up on two years previously. And it's also in both Germany and France, it's a lot higher than it was in Italy or in Britain that year. So it is important. It is a, a big issue in France, even if the absolute numbers are not enormous. If you take that as a share of all murders in France, it comes out at about 10%, which is very high. I mean, that is high. Do you, do you have a sense for why France has this problem? No, I think that is people are at a loss to understand why the, the rate is that high. It's, I think, partly because it hasn't in the past been followed up. Right from the beginning of the process of, of reporting these murders as murders, women are particularly nervous of going to the police station. They feel that they're not treated sympathetically, that they are especially when it comes to just dealing with the domestic violence, which usually precedes murder. In fact, the Justice Ministry came out with a report very recently saying that two-thirds of those who were murdered had a previous complaint against him of domestic violence. So if you look at the whole chain, right from reporting to the police all the way through to the justice system, there is a sense that it hasn't been taken seriously and that therefore perhaps, you know, this has uh, legitimised or at least allowed those who have um, perpetrated these crimes to, to get away with it. So are the protesters having any effect? Have authorities done anything to address this? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, what what has happened is there's been a bit of a wake-up call in France about this issue. And you've had a two-month consultation this autumn led by the Prime Minister and the Women's Minister, Equality Minister, who's a woman called Marlene Schepper. And I think it's the, the campaigners, along with the Women's Minister, have together sort of put this subject on the agenda, forced the government to take it seriously. After that, it's a question of a whole raft of measures that have now been announced and were announced by the government, and that is to do with, for example, training the policemen to be more sympathetic and under, to understand that when women make these sorts of complaints about domestic violence, that it is really serious. Publicising the emergency helpline that's now been put in place, creating more places in women's shelters, 
It's really a whole raft of issues all the way through from the very beginning. But I think the most important thing in a way is, and this is what campaigners say, is that they want the women who make these complaints to be taken seriously and to come forward, because in a way it's the silence that's so dangerous. But you say also that there's an underlying cultural problem here, that that people view each individual murder as a result of unique, of, of personal circumstances rather than indicative of a, of a broader problem. How do you change that kind of attitude? Well, I think that's right. I think it has been, you know, there's been a cultural change in France. If you look at really the last few years, uh, the Me Too movement, which was slow to catch on, has now had an effect. There's been much more, it's much more awareness about the dangers of sexual harassment and aggression. And there is, a, a, I think, a real awareness among younger people, in particular younger women who are asserting their rights, but also, you know, across the board that that these sorts of things can be legitimized by a sort of a cultural acceptance and that it's the culture itself that has to change. Thank you very much for your time, Sophie. Thank you very much. In Madrid, negotiations are continuing at the UN Climate Summit. The talks at the COP25 meeting are aiming to raise ambitions and to recommend new environmental pledges by the end of next year. And today, the European Union will announce a pledge to become the world's first climate-neutral continent by 2050, proposing to reduce emissions by half in the next decade. One sector that's especially susceptible to the effects of climate change is agriculture. In particular, grapes used for wine are incredibly sensitive to their environments. If there's too much heat, they develop too much sugar, and the extra alcohol ruins the flavor. Not enough heat, and the juice will be too tart. So they're only grown in select regions that have often been used as vineyards for centuries. But thanks to climate change, it appears those regions are shifting. Wine grapes are typically grown in areas where temperatures during the growing season are between 12 and 22 degrees. That corresponds to latitudes of between 30 to 50 degrees on the planet. Matthew Favas is a business correspondent for The Economist and a former wine buyer. So if you look at a globe, you can see very clearly two bands. Thanks to climate change, temperatures are rising, and therefore these bands are moving towards the poles. It's estimated that the northern frontier of wine cultivation could advance by between 20 to 60 kilometers each decade between now and 2050. And so what are winemakers doing about these, these shifting bands? So one thing they're doing is they're moving up north. So you see, you know, wines being made in England, where possibly it wasn't really made before, but wines made in Sweden also. And even across the Atlantic in Canada also, you see that uh, grapes are being grown ever further north. So even north of Toronto now, around Ottawa. And then Argentina, finally, is testing out some fields in, in Patagonia, which is very close to the pool. Do you think that will then be the, the net outcome of climate change's effect on wine? It's just simply the, the, the wine map will change? That would be a nice scenario, right? If it was just about moving your vineyards and everybody's fine. But it's, it's a bit more complicated because northern Europe, although rain is needed early in the season so that the, the vines can accumulate reserves of water, too much rain in the summer, and especially during the harvest, tend to make the grapes very watery, and that's really bad for wine. 
Second thing is too much humidity also brings diseases, fungus, and typically rot. This is also really bad for, for vines, and you can expect some damage there. Also being farther north typically is a problem because you're closer to the pole, and sometimes things come from the pole. You may remember in 2014, we the polar vortex, we had a, a very, very cold season because the polar vortex drifted southwards, phenomenon that people attribute to climate change. And that destroyed a lot of vines in New York State and Ontario. And then the last thing is climate change tends to make things less predictable. Uh, you have more extreme temperatures and typically early in the season and late in the season, abnormal temperatures, so more frost in spring, which destroys the grapes, drought in summer and during autumn, which also is not good for the grapes. So in the face of all those challenges, is is there more to be done than simply to, to, to move around? I mean, does that even fix it? So moving around can fix it, as long as you don't move to regions where it's either too humid or exposed to other dangers. But there are actually things that wine makers can do to, to protect the vines. The first thing is they can put some you know nets on the vines to protect them from extreme heat. They can train them a bit higher so that they're not too close to rocky soils which typically reflect heat at night. They harvest three weeks earlier on average than during the 60s. Often they harvest at night as well to avoid the grapes being oxidized because of the heat during daytime. You know, agronomists estimate that in Bordeaux, for example, if winemakers adapt these measures, as long as temperatures don't rise by more than two degrees, they can mitigate part of the damage. And then, you know, one of the more extreme things that they can do, and, and I expect that we'll see more often this, this kind of thing's been done, is choose other grape varieties. So grape varieties are typically good within a certain temperature range. In Bordeaux, where typically you grow Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot, they're starting to test out grape varieties from Portugal, which is really, really hot. So that may fix it. So on balance, do you think that, that the, the wine world is at risk of actually losing some varietals, any perhaps that you like? That may happen because some varietals only fare well in fairly cool climates. And we know that some regions are getting warmer, that we know. But it's not always clear that we'll find an equivalent to Burgundy, for example, because some regions further north could be too humid or not suitable for, for, for grape growing. And also, you know, enthusiasts of Bordeaux clarets may not appreciate that the wine acquires a different profile in terms of flavors and, and, and tannins and all the things that they like. Mathieu, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.